Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 30th of April with myself, Andries Vantanar, and my colleagues, Simon Thompson, Peter White, and Harry Morgan. I was saying that, that this is the big picture edition. It's, it's kind of like a scene setting theme today. Do you, would anyone agree? Peter, would you agree? I don't know, I, I, but I felt punch drunk after writing it. Yeah, it does go very wide. There's the huge political stories. There's a couple of technical ones. There's, um, I mean, the coverage on Poland really uh, explains in depth why Poland is so coal obsessed. And then there's some results. I mean, it, it does go far and wide. And the first story up was one I did on um, the two US departments, Department of Energy and Department of Transportation. Mostly the money is uh, coming from energy, but some rule changes uh, or rule clarifications coming from transportation in the United States. And it does link back to um, something that got a lot of publicity, which was called the same study written by NREL or, or a couple of people at NREL. Um, which basically said, if you connect the the west, the large western grids and the large eastern grids together, and you can move electricity between them, not only will it stop things like Texas from happening, the Texas freeze, but it will make mean that renewables, which live in different parts of the country, can sell their wares elsewhere and therefore it will lower the cost of electricity something which we always have to remind people has never happened in america since the beginning of time and so while they haven't actually stimulated the seams uh, study they've done something similar they've, they've had an organization list over 20 projects about 33 billion dollars worth of of uh, transmission upgrades which people think are a good idea and then they've said well well, more or less, here's eight billion to be getting along with. I mean, it's not quite like that. There's one is th- is, is more grants to the West uh, for about three and a quarter billion to connect solar to the rest of America, and the other the others is a loan program. So the money has to be repaid, but all money in renewables has to be repaid at some point. And if this just lowers the risk for other money to flow in, I mean, you could easily see all 33 billion project dollars worth of projects built out not within this administration but substantially within this administration and it and and they're calling this just a start that's something that we you know what donald trump's government did was bury the same study i think one of the major architects of it left now because he is he was being told he couldn't even talk about it it really couldn't be more different the change in approach yeah, I think one of the, um, the the great things about the new approach from Biden is that I think he's been much more aware of these sort of indigenous issues around uh, these infrastructure projects. I think it's been really interesting seeing the the focus that he's had through already through the sort of loan proposals that he'd focus on transmission projects that maybe run alongside a railway or run alongside sort of existing infrastructure, which obviously therefore gets around the land ownership issue or new land ownership issues that will sort of arise and often arise due to sort of indigenous groups. I think that's something that we've seen massively through things like the Keystone Pipeline and sort of these other infrastructure projects that may there is a whole history of things like the Keystone Pipeline poisoning or or bringing cancer to those communities. Hopefully they realise that an electric cable going above their communities doesn't do that. And do you think this programme will be beneficial for energy storage companies or people involved in that? so, so while I don't think you can stop the energy storage juggernaut, I do, I do point out in the article 
that China has already done this. China's already committed to spend, and they have a similar east-west problem. Uh, the west and in the north is where all the... Um, so in the west is where all the hydro is and where in the north is where all the solar is. The wind is various. Um, and therefore, getting it from A to B, getting it to the eastern conurbations in China was a similar problem and, and, and needed several thousand miles worth of um, transmission to be laid each time they made a connection. And they've gone ahead and done it. It's because they were losing a lot of the um, solar electricity through curtailment. Now, in those instances, they started by saying, and you've got to install storage with the solar so we can use the transmission lines when we want to. But at the same time, if you're two hours ahead of your Western counterparts, it's just getting dark, end of day, supper time and um, uh, prime time for energy, while solar is still working 2,000 miles to the west. So I think is, there are similar problems, and they committed to it uh, about a year ago, and now we'll see America commit to it. And that does mean that some of that solar can be used in real time. It doesn't mean that that will occlude storage, I, I don't think. I think storage is here to stay. And I think, especially in the western states in America, which have lots of solar, they need to have storage because they have lousy local distribution grids and, and everyone wants so let's move on you know what was your real take i mean the oil majors yeah they all made a profit this quarter they all have made a healthy profit this quarter but are they still on track do they still believe in the green revolution yeah it was interesting it was, it was I, I mean i mainly run it as one of the sort of lead stories because it's such because they're such big companies and it's such a um i suppose it's very, it's very topical but i in terms of the results they weren't that surprising i mean they all obviously as economies have reopened probably slightly faster than expected in, in the us in particular they've all done pretty well in terms of profit i mean they've all increased on quarter one profits from 2020 which is bear in mind sort of covid only really hit towards the end of that quarter so it is impressive that uh, that they've beaten those results to- total has seen an increased shell um and bp actually had a loss this quarter last year so yeah they've all done very well i think that it's all been due to the fact that oil prices have really ramped up while the sort of cost saving measures that these companies implemented through COVID has meant that they've actually had greater margins on their sales of oil. The cash flows obviously massively increased, which means they've managed to reduce their debt. And hopefully that means that we're going to see this sort of real surge of investments coming in. The thing that they're all talking about at the moment is buying back shares, which I know, Peter, you're not necessarily a massive fan of. Now, I do I'm, understand that the current thinking in stock markets is that it's often the best thing you can do with your money for your shareholders, but it's not a very good idea if your future relies on making huge investments to transition. Yeah, I think what I'm hoping to see really is that the share buyback is a replacement of sort of di- dividends in the near term. And that instead of suddenly returning to these huge dividends, they're going to spend this sort of increased cash flow on renewables projects. And and to be fair, we're seeing a reason about investments start to ramp up. BP, for example, has been really involved in onshore and offshore wind projects. Total recently acquired a lot of solar from, uh, from Adani. So... There are those investments coming in, and I think we—I mean, we saw this week BP send in a request to to FERC in the US to try and increase its sort of power trading business. I think it's focusing on states like California and Texas. So they are clearly starting the shift towards sort of power companies rather than energy companies. Uh, right, but there's companies. a key ingredient to look for in there. People like Total that are investing in the Adani um, uh, renewables business—that's just money. They, they don't have any people reporting back on how important that is if you do your own projects and you build up a team inside your group 
who become expert in this, they start to speak for renewables every time there's a board meeting. Slowly, that influence gains control of the company. So if, if you have to look out, if, if this is just money saying that we own this, we haven't got any people on it, it's far less significant because they can just sell it again. And, and that is the history. BP bought into renewables about 15 years ago and then sold out. And did it, I think I've done it twice. So you just have to, right, we can't sell this without losing a third of our people. That, that That's a different kind of hold on the company. And that's what needs to happen. And the, the thinking internally needs to shift radically. And they need to be people who speak for a lot of revenue for the group. Andres, did you get the sense that China attended the climate summit for the right reasons and, and that Russia was even present? Well, I mean, China, very much like its recent five-year plan, didn't put forward any new targets. So they're still sticking to peak emissions in 2030, net zero in 2060, and they feel that they've done enough. So really, they, they just turned up to the summit, I think, just just for reputational reasons, which I think was a, a big part of the summit in general. And then Russia, I, I suspect Russia turned up just because China was turning up. Uh, China announced the day before and Russia announced the day before that. So uh, they may have been talking to each other about it. Well, you're smaller, you're smaller than us. You, you announce first, then we'll come in. It's like again, jumping in the swimming pool at the wedding. It's, yeah, we're all going to do it. We're going we're gonna to dive in. And we're going to drag the groom in. You go first. <laughs> <laughs> you know, obviously, it's like a Western dominated forum. So at first, you know, they, they probably weren't too keen on it, but they want they want the reputation with the more neutral parties such as the EU or uh, just the international community in general. And of course, China does does have a lot to show. And, and it, it did say at this place at the um, the meeting that um, it will be limiting its coal plants quite a lot uh, by 2025. It was a bit of a vague statement. I'll put a different spin on that. Uh, all these countries have a sphere of influence. Russia less so, although it sells its gas into Europe. America, Biden in particular, would want China standing next to him when he says to an Asian, any Asian country, please do this with your emissions. If China agrees to do that, um, they've got nowhere to run. At, at the moment, you can play the, the super giants off against each other. You can say, well, if you won't do business with me, I'll do business with China. And if they present a united front, they'll have more leverage on all the other countries, uh, not just in Asia, but in, in Latin America as well, and potentially in, in China and in, in Africa. So I think it's really important that Biden has a, a, an ally in China and that they develop a relationship. And I think he thinks that too. So he'll take anything. Just turning up at a, a virtual summit will do for now. Next year, hopefully, they'll turn up for real. I think it's quite significant. I, I mean, it's it just says to everybody, yep, we're on the same page. What about you? And it just starts to, you know, you talked about Bolsonaro saying, oh, yeah, give me $10 billion. They will give him $10 billion on their terms with investments in renewables directly in his country. All he's got to do is ask the right question. And, and at the moment, he's just saying, give me, you know, haven't I done well? Well, he's done awfully. Uh, give me a billion dollars to start with. In the end, all of that will get done, but it needs to get done on the right terms. And, and, and Bolsonaro could play one off against the other, not if they're standing side by side. Vertical wind turbines, Harry, it's the same old argument. I'm not even sure you should be allowed to answer this question. 
you're so prejudiced against them. I, I've always had a, <laughs> a soft spot for them. But you, you gave some logical reasons why this Oxford Brooks professor may be wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good bit of research and I think it's important that we don't disband vertical uh, vertical axis wind turbines uh, which for anyone who doesn't know what they are who's listening uh, essentially like the horizontal wind turbines that we that we've come used to but they actually they spin sort of on the opposite axis uh, I can't sort of like a merry-go-round I suppose if you're trying to think of the way they the spin. axis goes straight um, up and down rather than going yeah up. well it's a vertical it's a vertical axis um, so essentially what the, the research that they said that they've come out with recently from Oxford Brooks University is that once if you arrange uh, multiple units of these vertical axis wind turbines in the correct way then essentially they can actually increase their output so if you have if you have them in isolation versus if you have them I think it's sort of distance by a certain amount and an angle of around 60 degrees. The output of each individual turbine increases by about 15% due to the sort of interactions they have with the wind. Obviously, this is essentially the opposite of what we have with uh, horizontal axis wind turbines. When we have them in wind turbines, we have things like the wake and blockage effects, which where, essentially where the turbulence downstream from a turbine means that while the upstream turbines may be working at 100% efficiency, the downstream turbine may be 80%, and even sort of the end of the wind farm may be down to sort of 60% of its potential. So obviously, when we're sort of shifting towards these larger scale wind farms, if a lot of the turbines aren't working the best they can, then maybe we could shift to these these vertical axis turbines where they actually will sort of work in harmony and actually produce more electricity because they're in a wind farm. And on that, by that logic, and the fact that they've actually probably got lower maintenance costs, you would you could think that yeah, this this could be the future of these sort of large scale wind farms, especially maybe offshore. But I think what we've sort of really have to be aware of is that the sort of size of these turbines that have really reached development. I mean, the largest we ever saw was back into the 1980s. Uh, it was around 400 megawatts, and they haven't got any larger than that due to the fact that the load that these turbines put on sort of ground bearings often means that they break. Um, so typically they're in a sort of, sort of well, kilowatt. Well, why do they rather. break when when the, the 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 horizontal ones don't break? Are they just using a smaller um, uh, smaller um, bearings? Uh, it's, due, it's more due to sort of the the way in which the sort of uh, shear is happening. So obviously in a in a vertical wind turbine, the wind's coming in sort of um, at perpendicular to the to the angle of the bearing, wherein uh, whereas in horizontal uh, wind turbines is coming at the same angle so there's not the same sort of shear bearing uh shear load on the actual bearing itself uh, and the, i mean it's the same there's the same sort of issues with um sort of the other components right but that's an argument to scale it so so what you're saying is while they're small that's fine but we don't know what's going to happen if if they get much bigger and if they get much bigger we may suddenly find this research doesn't hold because we can't invent a bearing which works like which works like that and so you might have a different deployment method for this you might stay relatively small compared to the big ones and cluster in large clusters that you pre-design and then you just add a new one and you everything gets bolstered by that new one so so maybe the argument isn't that they physically each have to become huge but that, that because they can be much closer together, they could just be deployed ad hoc over a period of time, lowering your immediate investment cost. And now I, I, I do understand that, that that might not be true, but I think these we, we need to have some of these out there so that we can learn about this. The current limitations essentially are the fact that they, if they can't be big enough, they can't be tall enough. The developments we've seen in traditional wind turbines is that the, sort of the stronger winds at higher altitudes are really basically worth accessing. 
Uh, and if these vertical turbines can't be installed at that sort of size, then that's potentially a resource that's then, then wasted. Um, I think obviously the the driver of change in the sense that we essentially just need more wind turbines as soon as possible, I think will drive the fact drive um, traditional wind turbines to sort of further economies of scale much more quickly. And they're already sort of on that trajectory. So I don't know whether or not the necessity to find an extra sort of maybe one or two percent, it sort of warrants a complete shift in technology. I think the other thing is that if they are going to be smaller turbines, then the transmission costs are going to be more. Probably the maintenance costs as a whole might be more because there's more units that can actually break, and you might need the sort of. Uh, well, and that takes away the main, the main benefit. If if the maintenance cost if the maintenance cost was so low that 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 you could have five times as many and and the maintenance cost was still low, that would work. But you're right. If you've got lots of instances of them but it's not either or we we don't have to have an either or we can have a horses for courses uh, and these companies that are pushing vertical access might find a couple of small wins here and there for the right reasons yeah and i think you're exactly right i think there's there are definitely benefits to the vertical turbines i mean we wrote an article a few weeks ago say, uh, talking about how in urban environments, the sort of volatility of winds means that sort of these vertical turbines might be more sort of beneficial because it doesn't really matter which way the wind's coming from, really. Um, whereas in horizontal ones, obviously, they need to spin to face the prevailing winds, which that's obviously a massive benefit. And I think the idea that you could potentially put one of these wind turbines on the top of your on top of your house, on top of your office, along with maybe some solar panels, I think that's where the sort of niche for these vertical axis turbines will continue to be. Um, I think that sort of distributed energy resource route to market is probably going to be where we see any of their development from here on in unless obviously there are sort of further developments from the sufficiency side of things but i imagine that sort of scaling issues that people have been trying to get over really for the past 30 years might be sort of too difficult to overcome based on sort of how quickly the prices of horizontal turbines are falling but you've got to suppress your disbelief on this subject because and, and what we should really do if anyone's listening to the podcast now um, if you if you have got anything to do with the vertical wind turbine, get in touch with us. Talk to us about the, the the deployment regime that you see suiting this technology. Perhaps we'll have a webinar on it. Perhaps we'll get attract more interest and see if we can turn it into a distributed version of energy like uh, rooftop solar. And um, perhaps you know we could make a difference.